Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in and look at this passage. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for all who are in this room. Um, we've had different kinds of weeks. Uh, we've had different kinds of lives. And so we bring who we are into this room, and we want to hear from you. And so we pray that uh, by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything that I say that's not in accord with your word, if it's not true, I pray it would fall on deaf ears. But if it is in accord, and if it is um, true, I pray that you would use these words um, to bring life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, This semester in RUF, if you've come, you've heard this, if not... Um, we're looking at encounters that people have with Jesus in John's gospel. And um, John was one of the four gospel writers, and he was kind of a a unique um, writer in the way that he talked about stuff and the angles that he took. And so to to set tonight's passage up for us, um, I'm going to tell you a story about a a man that I heard on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast uh, called Revisionist History, which is fascinating. as the kids say, 100. Uh, it was really great. And the story was about a guy, as the kids said four years ago, um, was about a guy named Tim Weiner. Now, Tim Weiner was an investigative journalist uh, over the course of his career um, for a long time with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, he's one of the only investigative journalists to win both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. And a lot of his fame in several of his books came from what I'm about to tell you. And in the 1980s, here's what happened. Um, He had been uh, in a few different stints, investigative roles, and he convinced, uh, covering different world events, he convinced the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer Inquirer, to um, put him on, uh, on duty in Afghanistan. And so as he was uh, preparing to go um, investigate Afghanistan, he had a specific thing that he wanted to look at. It was known back then that the CIA uh, of the United States government was funding and equipping this guerrilla-style military in Afghanistan, uh, kind of commonly known as the Mujahideen. And it's kind of a a, a loose Islamic rebel group who were out um, doing jihad, which doesn't have to mean kind of its modern context, uh, what we think about that. They they had taken up a cause, and they were out there trying to defend that cause. And so um, Weiner, before he left out, he called the CIA, and the CIA had uh, and still has today what's called like public information briefings where uh, I'm not sure who can go to these things, but you can go and get information about different places around the world. Um, Now, obviously, there's some stuff they couldn't tell you, but there's lots of stuff they could, I'm sure. So he just wanted kind of the information that he could get on uh, Afghanistan. So he calls up the CIA, and here's what he says. I called up the CIA, which has and always has a public information office, and I said... Hey, I'm going to Afghanistan, and I understand that you people do country briefings from time to time for foreign correspondence. So how about it? And the man who had answered the phone said, absolutely not. And he hung up the phone. So off I went to Afghanistan and had a jolly old time. And I hadn't been back in town for more than a day when my phone rang. And it was a public information officer for the CIA. And he said, why don't you come by for the briefing? So off I went to the CIA, which was way out in the woods outside of D.C. 
I went through all the different checkpoints, probably seven of them, through the lobby. And up on the wall of the lobby says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Which is from John's Gospel. So now I'm even more interested, because here I am at the CIA reading the Bible. I go up the seventh floor, where the executive suites were. And there were four CIA officers sitting at a conference table, ready for my briefing. But they really only wanted to know one thing from me. What's it like? These were supposed to be the top four CIA experts on Afghanistan. And they had never been to Afghanistan. So I walked out of there thinking, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to studying this agency. Because the experts don't know anything. Now imagine that. This was the group that of all groups should have known something. And he goes in and they want him to brief them on what Afghanistan was like. You know, how, do, how in the world does that happen? In this passage tonight that we're about to read, uh, we have an expert in religion. His name is Nicodemus. He was an expert in Old Testament faithful biblical religion. And yet, as we see in this encounter, he did not know, understand, believe, nor see the very thing that his whole religion pointed to. And Jesus comes in and tells him something that blows his mind. And in so doing, gives us the answer to where deep and lasting life is actually found. So this is John chapter 2, the last couple of verses, and then on into John chapter 3. And I'm going to read a section of it now, and I'll read more of it later. Um, one quick thing. I used a translation tonight that I don't normally use. Let me say one thing about that. Sometimes you'll hear me like pulling out words and saying things like, you know, what this really means is this. Um, I don't mean to like cast doubt on the translations as they show up on the screen. In the Greek language, um, words are a little bit fluid. Now, they don't mean totally different things, but they can take certain little angles. And, and so I try to draw some of that out. In addition, they have way more verb tenses than we do. And so sometimes I'll talk about verbs. I am not saying that the average Bible that you have in front of you or on your phone can't be trusted. Absolutely not. It actually can. Um, I'm just trying to do little, tiny little work in here. So this is a different translation than I normally use in fair warning. 2.23. Now, while Jesus was at the Passover festival in Jerusalem, many people placed their trust in his person, seeing the remarkable signs he was doing. But Jesus was not trusting himself to them because, uh, because he knew man. Uh, he knows everyone and because he did not need anyone to give him testimony about the nature of human being. You see, he himself knew quite well what is inside the human being. Now, there was a particular human being from the serious party, the Pharisees, Nicodemus by name, a leading figure of the Jewish people. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one could do the remarkable signs you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus responded and said to him, Amen, Amen. Which is, that is Jesus' way of saying, pay attention. Truly, truly is what it means. Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. 
Unless an individual is born all over again from above, that person cannot even see the kingdom of God. So Jesus stares down this devout, very religious man, Nicodemus, and shockingly says to him, you must be born again. So we're going to look tonight at that idea of being born again. What is it about this new birth? First thing we're going to see is we're going to see the need for the new birth. Uh, one of the things that I appreciated about this translation that I, that I picked for tonight is that in those first few verses, it really draws out the possibility that you could, um, you could believe in the things that Jesus was doing. You could believe, in the way the translation says it, is in the person of Jesus, the stuff of his life. You could kind of look at him and believe it. But that actually doesn't necessarily mean that you have saving faith. And the way that he goes about this is is he's talking about the signs and wonders. and, And the signs and wonders that Jesus did were very real. And Jesus elsewhere talks about that the very purpose of these signs and wonders was so that people would ask the deeper question and listen to Jesus' deeper message of what he was saying, that you have to believe in what he came to do as a substitute for sinners to be accepted to God. And so it's kind of, if, if you just saw the signs and wonders and you're like, man, that is awesome. Those tricks, or as Joe Bluth would tell us, those illusions are amazing. That is not enough. Jesus says you have to go beyond that. And we'll come to that in just a second. But early on then, at the end of chapter 2, we see people were just trusting in His person. And then in the way that John writes this and kind of structures this, um, this teaching, it's like he rolls out Nicodemus from the left side of the stage and says, here's exhibit A of one of those people. Here's Nicodemus. He's a religious man. Let's talk about it. So, we might think that if Jesus was kind of setting someone out, someone up only to like crush them and say, see what you shouldn't do, then he'd like pull some uneducated guy out or some uneducated woman and just like say, look, look at this guy. See how he just believes my signs and wonders? But Jesus goes for the most religious the most well-behaved, the most holy, good, righteous, lowercase r, righteous person he can find. And he says, Nicodemus here, let's talk about him. He tells a story about someone saying, you know, Jesus, uh, we know you're, you're a teacher come from God. We've seen the amazing signs you've done. We... We saw the 150 gallons of wine you made. Man, that's amazing. And he's acknowledging that Jesus did great stuff. And Jesus, like the great surgeon of the soul that he is, he sees right through the veneer and the creases of Nicodemus's surface level faith. And he takes his scalpel in hand and says, You have no idea how this works, Nicodemus. Unless you are born again from above, you do not know God. You can't even see the kingdom of God. You religious, pious one, 
Nicodemus, you who have huge chunks of the Bible memorized, you who lead others in religious practice and worship, you who are devout, you who use your vacation days and make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, you must be born again from above. And unless you are, you will perish. Um, Now, let's just kind of pause for a moment and just think about how utterly offensive this would have been to Nicodemus. Like, the most offensive thing you could say. It would be like someone coming up to you and saying, you're boring. Nobody wants to be boring. Or if they came up to you and said, you're a slut. Or if they came up to you and said, you are stupid, you have no friends. Whatever the most offensive thing to you would be, Jesus just went up to Nicodemus and said that. And now let's just think about how offensive this is for us. For many of us in the room uh, who don't waste your time playing fantasy football, who don't waste your time playing Xbox, who who don't waste all of your time watching Gilmore Girls reruns or Game of Thrones, or uh, who are killing it in the Bible reading plan. Maybe you're going to fall conference next weekend. Maybe you're coming over to our house for dinner for real meal. Uh, Maybe you've only been to two parties this year and you definitely didn't drink at those parties. Maybe you who are are just doing all the stuff that you've been told your whole life that you're supposed to do, Jesus is coming to you, not the bad people. He's coming to you, good people, and saying, you must be born again. All of that counts for nothing. You, You don't even have a clue if you think your religiosity and your morality counts with me. You must be born again. His words are so shocking. And if we hear them rightly, they're offensive. They're just offensive. Because what he's saying is that being good is not good enough. Doing right things doesn't make you righteous enough. He's saying that that having right theology doesn't matter enough. He's saying that that even saying you're a Christian doesn't make you Christian enough. Just saying the words and attaching that title to part of your identity, if it's not substantiated by faith, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's just not enough. So the question that this really points us and drives us to, and the question it drove Nicodemus to is, So how do I become born again from above? And I'm really glad you asked me that. So it's the second point. Nicodemus says to him, How in the world can a human being be born at all when he's already old? One cannot go back into his mother's womb a second time and be born there again. Can one? Please. Jesus responded, Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. Unless an individual receives a birth out of water and spirit, that person cannot cannot ever get into the kingdom of God. The person who has been born out of flesh is a flesh person. 
And the person who has been born out of the Spirit is a spirit person. Please do not be shocked that I said to you, it is absolutely necessary that you folks be born all over again from above. The wind, the Spirit, for example, blows wherever it wants. And you hear its voice, but you do not have any idea where it's coming from or where it's going. This is exactly the case with every single person who has been born out of the Spirit. And Nicodemus responds and says to him, Please, how in the world can these things happen? Uh, think about a time when, uh, when you were in a class or maybe at some sort of orientation event or new student deal. For some of you, that was just a couple weeks ago. Um, where it became apparent that you were supposed to maybe have read something ahead of time or you were supposed to know some of the vocabulary that was being used, um, but you really didn't. Um, in my first job out of college at Bank of Oklahoma, uh, downtown here, 16th floor, holla, uh, I sat there with the HR department. I didn't know what HR meant. I learned that meant human resources. Um, the HR department is is telling us all things Bank of Oklahoma. I've got this packet of stuff in front of me. I'm signing stuff that I don't know what it is. They're using words like insurance and deductible and co-payment and flexible spending plan. And I mean, I am like nodding and smiling and filling in bubbles. And I walked out of there just knowing I was going to jail. I just knew I did something illegal and I'm fired before it's even going. I just was utterly lost. <laughs> Let me be so clear about this. The thing that Jesus says to him about being born again, Nicodemus has no clue what he's talking about. He is like me at the BOK Tower times 50. It, and rightly so. Like, if you grew up in the church, you've been, maybe grew up in the Bible Belt, but not in the church, you've probably heard the phrase, to be born again. In, in our parents' generation, that's what Christians were called, the born-again ones. That was like the code name. But it's a weird thing. And it was weird to Nicodemus. And so you just see this hilarious, like, interpreting on the spot, processing out loud thing that he's doing. He's like, okay, Jesus, so... You're saying I've got to go back into my mom's womb when I'm old and like come back out? And the key to understand what Nicodemus is kind of his thought process and, and why this is so difficult for him to get is what he says and some of the verbs that he uses. Look in verses 2 through 4, and I'm going to put them up on the screen. He says, no one can do the remarkable signs that you're doing. I put cigs up there. Left out an N. Not cigarettes. That's with a C. Okay, no one can do the remarkable signs that you're doing. In verse 2. Down in verse 4. How in the world can a human being be born at all when one is already old? And down in verse 4 again. One cannot go back into a mother's womb. Can one? When, when Nicodemus is trying to understand what Jesus is telling him, he is focused entirely on what humans can do. He is focused entirely on what is in his realm of possibility to do. And, and thus he's missing what Jesus is saying because Nicodemus is like, I don't understand, Jesus. I can't do that thing you're saying. 
A, it's weird. B, it's impossible. I can't go be born again. But then, like, so Nicodemus is kind of embodying human rationality in the truest sense. Only what is humanly reasonable can be true. That's his kind of operating uh, modus operandi. That is what he is saying. But what's confusing about Nicodemus is that he's already talked about God a little bit. He's looked at Jesus and said, look, it's clear that you're a teacher come from God. And, and elsewhere he, he mentions the word God a few times. And so it's kind of like, well, what is it, Nicodemus? Are you just a rationalist? Or are you a believer? Like, what is it? And I think, actually, in our generation, we have a good word for this. Nicodemus is very spiritual. He's very spiritual. He's, he's open to some aspects of, of otherworldliness and, and maybe divinity even. Kind of that maybe everything that is isn't stuff that we can see. Maybe there's some stuff out there that's supernatural. Um, you know, and for us, we talk about this stuff sometimes in vagueness. We'll say, oh, you know, everything just happens for a reason. Or... Um, something happens and we're like, our thoughts and prayers are with you and send a little emoji here and like a heart. and Like we kind of use this vague spiritual language sometimes. I think that's what's going on with Nicodemus. He's got some bits and pieces of this, but it's not all being put together. And Nicodemus with his kind of vague, man-centered, can-do spirituality and our avoid saying hard or potentially embarrassing things, spirituality. He says to Jesus in verse 5, actually Jesus says in Nicodemus verse 5, says, let's cut to the point, Nicodemus, unless you have received a spiritual rebirth from above, not from within, this isn't go find yourself, this isn't go get your life together from above, unless you are born again from above, not from out there somewhere, go follow these teachings and and do these moral things and don't do this for two weeks and then you can come. He says, Nicodemus, unless you are born again from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. So the million dollar question is, how does that happen? How do you get that spiritual rebirth from above? Jesus says right there, He says, just like the wind blows and rustles the the leaves of the tree, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, but you see its effect. So must the Spirit blow in your heart. Your being born again is a work of God's Spirit. It is not of your own doing. And I hope for some of you that's offensive Because that means that you've been trying so hard to present your life in a way to God to say, don't you notice me now? Won't you accept me? Look at all the things. I I stopped drinking and now I'm ready. And, And Jesus is saying, no, being born again is something I do in you, not something you do for me. And so it drives us to the point. How do we get that? How do we... Where is the Spirit? Where is this wind? Where is it blowing? No one knows except God. 
God is doing and God can do the very things that you can't do and that you're not doing. God blows His wind, His Spirit down from above and He awakens our hearts. And I love Nicodemus verse 9. He gets to the end of Jesus' explanation and he's just as frustrated as he can possibly be. And he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. It's like you talking to your grandparents and when you say like every other word, your grandma's like, what? why are you saying that? What does that mean when you say like and literally so much? That doesn't comprehend. I don't, I don't know who you are, young child. We can't talk anymore. Nicodemus has gotten to the end of this with Jesus and he's just like, Jesus, how in the world can these things happen? What are you saying? Which leads us to the last point, the source of the new birth. Jesus responds and says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. What we know, we talk about. And to what we have seen, we give testimony. But you folks simply do not accept our testimony. If I, told, I have told, sorry, if I have told you people earthly things and you are not believing, how in the world will you believe if I should tell you heavenly things? Well, no one has ever gone up into heaven except the one who has come down from heaven. I'm talking about the Son of Man. You see, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has got to be lifted up so that every single individual who is trusting may, by means of Him, have deep, lasting life. You see, God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son so that every single individual who is entrusting oneself to Him would never be destroyed, but have deep and lasting life. Nicodemus says, Jesus, how can one be born again? And Jesus answers him saying, Nicodemus, we've been around you, we've been among you, we've been telling you, and you and you folks like you, you have not believed us. But I'm going to try and make it even more plain for you, Nicodemus. And Jesus, in his next step, does something so loving and so gracious and so kind. He goes into Nicodemus's book. He opens the Bible. He opens the Old Testament. Nicodemus was an expert in the Old Testament. And he takes him right to Numbers chapter 21. And in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the book was not called Numbers. It was called In the Wilderness because it was a story about God's people in the Old Testament wandering in the wilderness after they had been miraculously delivered out of Egypt. And it's just an account. It's really a sad story because we want them to be like, oh man, that was awesome. God just brought us out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea and miraculous did all these things. And we want it to be like this list of highlights of how they believed in him and trusted him and never doubted him. But it is like the opposite. And Numbers 21 tells us this. I'm going to put it up on the screen in verse 4. It says, And the people of Israel went out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. God had miraculously been giving them bread from heaven every day. And they're like, This is terrible, God. It doesn't taste good. 
He says in verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, Moses, that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What did they not do to be healed? They did not touch the serpent. They didn't go offer homage and allegiance to the serpent. They didn't go sacrifice something to the serpent. They didn't have to say a certain thing to the serpent. They didn't have to give an offering or possessions. They looked at the serpent and they were healed. That required one thing of them. To believe what God had told them. That if you look at the serpent, you will live. If you would take God at His word and respond, you would be healed. Jesus says to Nicodemus, You see, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has got to be lifted up. This is one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to Himself. Like the snake, a lifted up Son of Man is the only way. So that every single individual who is trusting may, by means of Him who is lifted up, have deep and lasting life. Nicodemus, you've got to see this. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that every single individual who is entrusting himself to Him would never be destroyed and have deep, everlasting life. Here's a true truth for us all in this room tonight. We have been bitten, not by a snake, but by sin. And it has affected all of us in ways that I I assure you we don't understand. I'm 36. I'm not old, but I'm older than you are. And I am still seeing my sin in new and surprising ways, in terrifying ways. We have been bitten by sin. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and he's looking at us and saying, If you trust me, if if you believe in me and who I am and what I came to do, you will have deep lasting life. Not one day, but it'll start today. I'm going to finish with this thought. Because you see, Nicodemus walks away silent, confused maybe, we we don't know, maybe angry, maybe offended. But this actually is not the last time Nicodemus shows up in the Gospel of John. Uh, Two other times. The next one is in John 7. He's at the Israeli Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. And it's in session and all the other judges are there talking about Jesus and how he's deceiving people and and, uh, that he should be arrested. And Nicodemus sticks his neck out for Jesus and defends him and says, maybe we should give him a fair trial like our law says we should do. And all the other judges, they snap back at him and and they, they build up their anger at him and they tell him to shut up. So Nicodemus, has, he's progressed. He's willing to like make a stand for Jesus. He's gone from coming to Jesus at night to doing it in a very, a very real way, yet still a little bit private. 
that Sanhedrin. And then he shows up in John 19, almost at the end of the book. Nicodemus uh, shows up. Jesus had died. And John tells us that Nicodemus is one of the people, one of the few people who show up to take Jesus' body to prepare it for burial. And what does Nicodemus do but show up with 75 pounds of expensive spices? It says myrrhs and aloes to embalm Jesus' body before they put him in the tomb. Now, that may sound like whatever to us. Scholars would say that the only people who got that treatment were royalty. See, what's happened is Nicodemus comes to the end of Jesus' life. We don't know how much longer he lived. But something had, had moved him down to the core. Because you don't give of your expensive things. You don't give of the things most precious to you unless you've known a love worth giving them for. And the same is true of you. Until you see the extravagant and costly and beautiful love of Jesus for you, you'll never give your life for Him. Why should you? But you see, Nicodemus found that Jesus was the King. He was His Savior. Some of you have, some of you haven't. Hear Jesus come to you tonight and say, I love you. I am your Savior. And I will give you the new birth from above. Just look at me. Don't do anything. Just look at me and trust my love for you. I've died for your sin. I've made you right with God. Look at me and believe. This is the gospel. It's for you. Let's pray.